0: what's going on people how you doing out there thank you so much for tuning in we are back with another episode of the destroying doubt podcast thank you so much for listening thank you so much for your support today i've had i have another very special guest with me she's been here before i introduced her to you all earlier and she came back to to spread some more knowledge and to educate us all and to keep us keep us abreast with everything that's going on Uh, She has been working at the Center on Consciousness and War for a really long time, nearly a decade now, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct?
1: I've been there for six years.
0: Six years? Mm Mm-hmm. Close enough to a decade for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, She works in D.C., so she's our political expert. If she doesn't mind me calling her that, because she is more in tune to everything that's going on, she has to be um, with her job. So... She's back again. Thank you so much, uh, Maria Santelli, for joining us again. Thank you.
1: Sure. Well, thank you for having me um, under these circumstances, especially.
0: (laughs) Right, right. Uh, Since the last time we've had you on, a lot has occurred. A lot. I, I, I think we have. Was he was Trump the president last time you were on? I don't think he
1: was president yet. He may have been elected, but I don't think he was president yet.
0: Oh, okay. Okay, cool. I mean, well, okay. Since the last time we had you, we had you on, we have a new president now. Um, <laughs> so much has transpired since then. You know, we've had Muslim bans. We had Syria. We had North Korea now recently. And we don't know what is true and what is not true because apparently we have alternative facts out there. So, <laughs> so much going on. I don't know you know where you want to start but just enlighten us because you know the for someone that's out there listening is like okay well what does this have to do with destroying doubt and you know reaching your goals and all that kind of stuff well you know you can't reach your goals if we're all dead
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah that's true
0: (laughs) <laughs> so we we want to do our part you know as a community and do you know our due diligence and and what's going on in in the office and around us in our community and our you know with our politicians so that we can build our community and that we aren't doing harm to our community and we want to come together and we want to be informed so we can make you know an impact in our community so that's why we haven't read today to enlighten us on everything that's going on so you go ahead and start wherever you want to start
1: Well, I guess um, at this time, I feel like what's most important is to recognize that you can't end violence with violence. Um, It was a very sad day when uh, Trump began the airstrike or or executed the airstrike, the the 59 Tomahawk missiles on the uh, air base in Syria, you know, costing us, I think it was 100 million dollars. Of course, um, in order for Trump to meet his budgetary goals of increasing the Pentagon budget by 10 uh, percent or some 52 to 54 billion dollars, one of the things he wants to do is cut health care for active duty members of the military, which is just appalling to me. And somehow, we don't have money for health care for active duty service members, but he finds 100 million dollars to bomb an airfield that was operational. 12 hours later. So you have to question what the objective is there. Is the objective really to end, uh, end violence, or is the objective, what was the objective? I don't know. Was the objective to make Trump seem more presidential? Because that certainly seemed to work, because somehow being presidential is synonymous with executing wars. Um, so it, it was, a, it, was a very, it was a very disheartening day uh, last week when those missiles fell. And I, my heart goes out to the people on whom they fell, on whose heads they fell, but my heart also goes out to the service members who were asked to pull those triggers and to fire those weapons, because the wounds of war are not just the ones we see inflicted on, on the physical victims. You know, the wounds of war go deeper than that, and the most... I think the deepest cuts of U.S. service members come when they see that their actions, you know, the way that they caused violence and suffering, had no meaning. And that brings us back to my bottom line. Killing people, you know, wreaking havoc on cities and towns in order to show how you're not supposed to kill people and how you're not supposed to, you know, use violence against other people is meaningless. You know, to, you, you don't, um, you know, you don't use violence. You don't say, you don't kill somebody in order to teach killing is wrong. I know that's what we do as a culture, but that obviously is not working. You know, another anniversary last year, uh, the, the day that, that Trump bombed, was the 100th anniversary of the U.S. entry into World War I. This was supposed to be the, world, the war to end all wars. But instead, what has happened? It was actually the war to usher in a century of near continuous war and violence. A hundred years later, have we learned nothing? You cannot defeat terrorism with war. You cannot defeat war with war.
0: I think that is an amazing breakdown of everything and very well put. Um, you, You have a lot of people that will say, well, what do we do when you see the, the children and the people in Syria being choked out with the gas bombs, uh, with the chemicals, uh, rather? Um, what, what do we do? Like, do we just stand by and allow this to happen? Like, what, what do we do? What do you say to those people?
1: Well, I think we have to follow the money like anything. Here's something to consider. When your product is a weapon, your market is war your product is a weapon. What is your market? Your market is war. So we have lots and lots of weapons, and they have zero value if they're not used up in order to make room for more weapons. And so we need to follow the money. When we're looking at creating a real, just, and lasting peace, we need to follow the money. And U.S. arms manufacturers donate Ex- donate, excuse me, <laughs> that's a funny word, but let's, let's use it, I guess, or bribe our Congress people, our members of Congress, our senators, and our House uh, representatives. These arms manufacturers give, you know, astronomical amounts of money. When I lived in New Mexico, I knew the exact figures, and I could say without a doubt that my senator, Pete Domenici, at that time, he was in the Senate for 36 years, he received more money from the nuclear weapons industry then he received from New Mexicans to run his campaigns, to be in the, in the Senate for 36 years. And, and the same could be said, I'm sure, from many, many senators and many, many congresspeople, that they are getting elected via the, the contributions of people who make money from weapons, and therefore people who make money from war. And we don't, the U.S. doesn't just, you know, sell its weapons To our allies. We also make it possible for our arms uh, manufacturers to sell weapons to people that we might call our opponents. So we have to look at that, what's going on in Syria. Are we arming and are we allowing to be armed all sides of this conflict? And if that is true, we are actually, with our economic uh, you know, um, involvement and in our, in our arms manufacturers' economic involvement, we're actually fueling both sides. So is there really a sincere uh, feeling on the part of the United States to see the conflict in Syria or any conflict around the world to end? What would be the incentive? If people make money from these wars, and therefore our Congress people and our senators are able to fund their multi-hundred million dollar campaigns easily, what is the incentive to end these wars? So follow the money. We have to stop allowing the United States and our allies to to fund, to, to arm these fighting factions. Cut off the supply of weapons. That would be the thing that we can do. Now, I understand we, this doesn't exist in a vacuum. People have to understand this doesn't exist in a vacuum. You know, number one, we just don't even know. And U.S. intelligence says maybe it wasn't the Assad regime who actually used these chemical weapons against these people. So we need to have all the facts straight before we just go off and pull the trigger. But I think, you know, um, we also need to understand that this war has been going on for six years while the United States sat back and funded directly or indirectly both sides and allowed it to go on. And now all of a sudden we decide that here's a gray line. So what about diplomacy? What about diplomatic alliances and diplomatic partnerships instead of military alliances and military uh, support and military partnerships? You know, in in Trump's budget, the the, the proposed budget I mentioned earlier, he proposes a 28% cut, in the State Department, that's U.S. diplomatic efforts in favor of a 10% increase in our already bloated military budget. So how is that a sincere desire for peace? How is cutting diplomacy by almost a third, how is that a sincere desire to really broker a just and lasting peace? It's not. And then at the same time, you have to look at the fact that we're bombing the homes we're bombing, you know. We're allowing to be bombed the homes of people whom we will not welcome as refugees. So, yeah, I have to question what our motives are. That, that's ahead, where I.
0: That, no, no, you're fine. That's where I was going at next. Uh, I was going to ask about the about the Muslim ban. Like, what are your thoughts on that? How does that play into everything? Uh, break that down for us. Wow.
1: Well, I mean, it's horrifying, of course. Um, The idea to assume that that an entire religion is our enemy, the idea to assume that an entire religion is suspect, we're talking about billions of people on the planet. You know, Erica Chenoweth, a name I recommend everyone to Google, she is a scholar and she has studied nonviolent and violent movements for democracy around the world in the last 100 years. And she says that refugees, the word refugee, should be synonymous with the words nonviolence, courage, and agency. In other words, in my view, that's a conscientious objector. We need to look at these refugees not just as people fleeing violence, but also as people who are fleeing the potential of having to do violence upon others, against others. Do you know what I mean there? A lot of these refugees that are fleeing are actually young men yes young muslim men in many cases and they would be drafted they would be drafted to fight on assad's side they would be drafted to take a side in their country's civil war if they didn't fight in their drafted assad you know state military they would be forced to take the side of of the of the opposition, you know, of, of of ISIS or of the of the rebels fighting against the Assad regime. And so a lot of these refugees are actually young men, young Muslim men who have said, No, I will not be trained to kill anyone, my fellow country people or anyone else. So I think it's 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 scapegoating, it's racist, it's it's showing a vast misunderstanding of the Muslim faith. And of individual Muslim people and their own agency to choose peace. I think it's embarrassing for this country and it's not helping anything. What what solution are we providing to the global struggles by simply telling refugees that they cannot come here? It it, it has no it makes no sense or logical um it has no logical reason at all.
0: Um I've heard people answer and say, Well, you know, what about we don't know who's who, what about, you know, someone that could come in you know, one of those refugees could be, you know, uh, 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 what's the word, extremist terrorist? Uh, what if they could be doing damage? You know, you have to weed out because you don't know the percentage or that one person that could do harm. What what do you say about that?
1: Refugees are vetted more than anyone coming to this country. They are already extremely vetted. That's how we're finding people. You know, we laugh and we say, oh, the, we need a border wall to keep people out. How do you think we know how many undocumented immigrants are in this country because our immigration systems actually work because our enforcement actually works because our intelligence you know internally actually works we know we we know how to find out about these people in fact i mean you know active duty service members taking their own lives have have killed more members of the u.s military than isis has killed you know i mean you have a greater chance of dying because you can't access health care as a citizen of the United States, then you have it dying at the hands of a terrorist. What about heart disease? What about smoking? What about vehicular deaths? What about gun violence, which kills 33,000 people every year? I mean, come on. If we actually looked at these real killers, actual killing, actual things that kill Americans, citizens, if we actually looked at them and took action toward them in a serious and concerted, you know, uh, fashion as we do against immigrants and refugees, we would reduce deaths of American citizens, you know, in dramatic numbers. People are not dying in, in dramatic numbers of terrorist attacks in this country. It isn't happening. It just is not true. And if it was happening, we would hear about it more. You know, if there were people dying at the hands of refugees, you bet your butt it would be headline news and we would know about it. And we don't know about it. So it's not happening. It's it's a lie. It's a red herring. You know, they are vetted. We do know who's coming into this country.
0: Wow. Um, to, mm. to, oh, go ahead. Go ahead.
1: No, I was just making a sound.
0: Oh. It's oh. <laughs>
1: so troubling, isn't it?
0: It is. It's so it is in that you just mentioned something about the wall, sorry to go back a little bit, but and you know to bring this up, but you mentioned something about the wall. is that beneficial in any way? what's the method behind the madness if there is one like could you explain this whole wall situation to us The wall yeah. is
1: ridiculous. I lived in a border state for many years. I lived in New Mexico, and it's a very complex situation going there uh in terms of like land ownership. You know, easements, you know people's land being seized who live on the border, people who um, you know who have farms or ranches on the border. I mean, Texas went through this. We do have fencing along the border. We have thousands of miles of fencing, maybe not thousands, excuse me, it might be just hundreds of miles, but we have lots of fencing already on the border, and it was a, a boondoggle and a nightmare for President George W. Bush to put that fencing there. so the idea of to have a wall of having a wall. On the entire border, I think it's just ridiculous. You're looking at billions of dollars and, um, you know, no reasonable way to keep people out. You're looking at loss of civil liberties because people who who own land along that border are going to have their land seized. You're looking at a delta, uh, I mean, a, a floodplain, a riverbed environment that has environmental and habitat considerations, and you're just going to build a wall. You know, I mean, it's it's very, it's ridiculous. And, of course... The migration of people has always happened. It is going to continue to happen since the dawn of humanity. And a wall, you know, you build a 10-foot wall, the business for 11-foot fences is going to be booming. We already do have incredible border patrol. We already do have vigilante you know citizen border patrols out there you know i mean this the idea that our border is not secured and is is leaking like a sieve is simply ridiculous the other thing to consider is that immigration is actually going in the other direction now people are not coming from from south uh, from central america mexico or central america to the united states as as they were before the uh, we again like this does not take place in a vacuum we need to look at this holistically in 1992 There was a study done that said if global trade agreements, free trade agreements like NAFTA pass, specifically NAFTA, looking at NAFTA for Mexico, if an agreement like NAFTA passes, which it did in 1994, became law in 1994, we will have 11 million immigrants coming to this country looking for work. So that sure did come to pass, and that's exactly what happened. And the reason that people were able to see what happened was because they were able to analyze what this free trade agreement did to the people and the workers of Mexico. And what that agreement did was actually change the Constitution in a number of ways in Mexico, taking people, kicking people off their commonly held lands, so that if you didn't have a deed for your land, but you might have been farming on that land, you might have been grazing animals on that land, making a real livelihood for yourself and for your family, you no long, If you didn't have a deed for that land, you no longer were going to be able to stay on that land and use that land for your family's or your community's economic benefit. So what happened? then? That became property of the government, and you know what? The government then went ahead and did, leased or sold that land to multinational corporations for exploitation. But the individuals who had been making a fine livelihood for themselves, Home, because most people, given the choice, want to stay home, but they were kicked off their land and they were forced to move north, to migrate north, either to work in the maquiladores, the factories on the Mexican side of the border, or to come across the border and to work in the United States. When someone is hungry, when someone's children are hungry, they are going to seek food. The other issue that's happening is the violence, the gang violence and the narco violence, the drug violence further down in South Central America. And these kids that, have, that were fleeing, you know, this was really big news a couple of years ago, these unaccompanied minors that were fleeing up here for their own safety. So rather than just, you know, build a wall to keep people out, the United States, again, can use its nonviolent partnerships and its nonviolent um you know, uh, capacity, powers to, to help people in these other countries and help them stay on their lands. But instead, the, the federal government in this country is all too happy to seize lands from the developing world and have them handed over, lock, stock, and barrel to multinational or U.S. based, uh, exploitative corporations for, for mining, for, for, for logging, uh, or for, you know, um, large scale corporate farming. So, yeah, these things don't exist in a vacuum. You have to follow the money, and you have to follow the history and see why these things happened, why people began coming to the United States in such dramatic numbers in the first place. And it's because of our own policies and how our own policies affected them. So, no, I don't blame the weak person. I don't want to make the plight worse for the weaker person. We should be looking at and holding accountable the corporations that made these people have to flee their homes follow
0: the money <laughs> <laughs> right right um wow you said a you said a lot there and it made a lot of sense um so i guess you know we we addressed the we, we addressed the muslim ban we addressed syria uh what's something else pressing right now uh north korea that's been popping up on the radar a little bit uh what's the situation with north korea
1: oh my goodness um You know, God forbid. Um, So we did have a conscientious objector contact us from South Korea today. Yesterday, I'm sorry. And, um, And he said on the ground there, it's always a very hostile environment. So nothing feels like it's changed too much, you know, for U.S. service members there. So the climate yet doesn't seem to be hyping up. But certainly the rhetoric is flying back and forth. And, you know, Trump is impulsive. Trump has inexperienced, uh, uneducated advisors who know nothing. Jared C- Kushner, his son-in-law, who is one of his top advisors, is a real estate developer. He's a 36-year-old real estate developer. What the heck does he know about North Korea and relations with North Korea? His other, you know, trusted advisor is his daughter, who you know is a shoe designer or something. <laughs> you know, what does she know about mm. maintaining, you know, peace? In the world, so that's frightening. Um, the other thing is that you know Trump doesn't seem to really have a real, uh, an identifiable set of principles which uh, underlie his actions or inform his actions. So we really don't know um, what he is capable of doing. Sadly, the same is true of uh, Kim Jong Un. You know, the dictator of North Korea. You know, he's he's completely unscrupulous and unprincipled. Dictator who starves his own people while he gets chubbier and chubbier eating imported cheese, you know, I mean this is really a frightening situation and he has a nuclear weapon. Yet the United States said we are not going to sign on to the international ban on nuclear weapons, which sets a really bad example. You know, we have thousands of nuclear weapons in our possession. Uh, these other countries, these smaller countries that are developing nuclear weapons like North Korea see that and they see our obstinance that we actually protest United Nations meetings and we actually boycott United Nations meetings on controlling nuclear weapons. North Korea sees that and they and they feel like an impetuous child, too, when they see us behaving that way. So I think it is beholden upon the United States to be a leader and to set an example and to to continue to question the presence of nuclear weapons in the world being in the hands of anyone. Even us. So uh, we don't know. I mean, it's it, yeah, it's a scary situation. Um, so we just need to uh, keep our eye on it and, and hope that, that, that um, you know, the better angels of our nature uh, are, are allowed to prevail, and that includes Trump. You know, he also has better angels uh, in his nature. I think all of us are, are predisposed to peace and, and would prefer a situation of peace. Um, the sad thing is he's not going to be asked to fight personally, and neither are his loved ones. So it's easy to call the shots. It's easy to order the, order the strikes uh, when you're not personally affected. Um, and so I think we need to all just do our part and let him know how we will be personally affected. In the event of escalation of tensions with North Korea, because all those people over there, if we just think selfishly, all those service members stationed in South Korea and in the region are our our country people. They're our brothers and sisters, and we will be responsible for their care in perpetuity if they are damaged physically or emotionally by whatever they're asked to do in a conflict with North Korea
0: exactly you just brought up something that really you know touches a chord with me when you brought up you know being responsible for the the military members the service members um Mm -hmm. it seems like everybody is so bloodthirsty and war hungry and you know we go outside and we wave our flags when you know they get on tv and they say that you know we've launched 59 tomahawk missiles overseas or whatever and people like yeah america whatever um but like you said, we're not thinking about the people that are actually affected by this. And when they come home, if they come home, no one cares about them anymore. Um, what, what do you say about it? Like, what are your feelings? What are your thoughts about it? I think it's despicable.
1: Um, you know, we have uh, 20 veterans a day taking their own lives. and We have one active duty service member taking their own life every day. And we don't talk about it. It should be a national emergency. You know, instead, we're concerned about ISIS. And ISIS, as I said before, ISIS has not killed um, as many service members as have taken their own lives. You know, I think you can probably count on both your hands. I don't know the exact number, but um, how many service members ISIS has killed. It's very, very small, yet we have this as our priority. So we should have care of our service members as a priority. And I think the number one thing that we can do for them is not send them into any more conflicts. Hundreds of thousands of people have been uh, permanently damaged physically or emotionally by the wars so far, by the wars in, in the last 16 years in Iraq and Afghanistan. Hundreds of thousands of people are permanently injured and disabled because of these wars. And yet they still rage on. These wars still rage on. So, um, yeah, I think it's despicable. And we see a pattern in the military of the military saying, um, uh, denying care, right, making it either an overt denial, actually denying people care, or using other techniques to discourage people from seeking care, right, the stigma of mental illness, the stigma of being affected by war or military service in some way, right? So that you're, you're, you're shamed from seeking care. And so what we see happening in tens of thousands of documented cases is that somebody acts out because of their, of their injury, because of their moral or psychological injury, they act out in some way. Maybe they smoke a little weed. Maybe they drink, maybe they drink and drive, um, maybe they, you know, get into a fight. Some act of misconduct because they have been pushed to their limit. And what's the military's response? Kick them out. Kick them out and strip them of their benefits. So, it, we have this documented in, in over 80,000 cases in just the Army alone. And this, of course, is happening in other branches of the military. So, it's, it's shameful. So the military says, you came broken. This was you came to us like this. We didn't do this to you and therefore we're not gonna care for you. And this is not just happening with people who have a couple months in service, of course. This is happening for people who have careers in the military. So the idea of supporting the troops, you know, that little yellow ribbon on the back of your SUV rings a little hollow in light of this information, you know. Um so I think that if we are going to wage war, then we need to be accountable for the damages that it causes, including the psychological, the unseen wounds, the invisible wounds that our own service members uh, struggle with. And, and I don't believe that the United States will ever be honest about that, because if you're honest about that and if you're transparent about that, if you show, if you broadcast to the world by providing adequate lifelong care for these people, then you're also broadcasting that war damages people, and you're going to make it less palatable for the, for the general public, people will support it less if they understand the ramifications. Mothers will not let their children sign up in such large numbers, although they're not that large. You know, only 1% of the population is the military. That's it. The military composes one or comprises 1%. Of the population of the United States, less than one percent actually. So it's a very, very small number who says, "Yeah, I'll do this. I'll, I'll kill for you." And uh, and then they and then many of them try it or, or do it and uh, and and they're injured for life. And because it's such a small population, such a small percentage of our population, most of us aren't touched by it. And because militarism, in and of itself, is so ubiquitous. Militarism is everywhere, right? The Pentagon sponsors Katy Perry music videos, right? Look at the music video where she's dancing on the beach at Camp Pendleton. That's paid for by the Pentagon. The Pentagon uh, funds Hollywood movies so that there can be little advertisements for the military in war in there. The the National Guard underwrites high school events, paintball competitions, and things like that, right? Uh, You have the military at sporting events. It's ubiquitous. The military is everywhere. Therefore, the American public, I think, is duped into thinking that there's more acceptance of war and violence then there really actually is more active acceptance we've been sort of lulled into thinking this is just a normal state of things we have to accept war because there's no other solution we have to believe that a certain percentage of our population is expendable the kids that we allow to join the military the kids that we allow to fight our wars for us we have decided consciously or unconsciously that these kids are expendable we've decided that with our actions and we've decided that with our inactions and it's time we said no to that it's time we said no no one is expendable because once we say as a culture no one is expendable then we will become creative with our solution how
0: how do we do that how do we get more people to say that no one is expendable because uh as you know, and I know very well, right now that you know the people that stand up and say no, I don't support this, are the ones that are, you know, frowned upon, looked down upon. Like we're the weirdos, we're the crazy ones, uh, we're the conspiracy theorists. We're this, we're that. Uh, so you know, I think that more people need to stand up and say no. But it's 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 big to do so. Um, you yes. have you have to overcome a lot of doubt. You have to overcome a lot of things to be able to you know take that stand. Uh, How do we get more people to to do that?
1: Well, I think think the statistic I just quoted for you, saying that the military comprises less than 1% of the population, really showing the reality. You know what? Not everybody is complicit in this. Pointing that out, that actually most people have said by default, you know, 99% of us have said by default, no, thank you. We'd really rather not kill. But you guys can go ahead and do that. So if it's something that you're not willing to do yourself, why are you willing to let someone else do it for you or someone else's children do it for you? So I think we need to point out that we are not in the minority, in fact. We are in the majority. We stand with 99% of the population who has said, no, I will not volunteer to kill for you. When you, when you look at the historic numbers, including veterans in that picture, it only jumps to 7%. So even so, and a lot of those men were drafted. So even in a draft, considering the history of a draft, we still only have seven percent of the population fighting our nation's wars. So how we are? So how are we in the minority? How are we oppose war in the minority? We need to flip that language. We need to flip that belief system, and we need to flip that cultural um, misunderstanding. It is a misunderstanding. So I think that's one of the most effective things we can do. The default position for humanity is conscientious objector to war. That is our default position. We do not actively seek out military service. In fact, the very few of us do. Less than 1% of us do. So I think we need to bust that myth and show that we are actually in the majority. So, um, yeah, I think that's the most effective tool we have
0: i I agree uh what if but you know just you know playing devil's advocate what if that 99 percent they actually agree with you know the the actions taking and the measures taken. um they're just they you know they they look at themselves as not being man enough to do it that's why they laud and applaud the ones that do do it uh they <laughs> would do it if they had the courage to they just don't have the courage to so they're not opposed to killing <laughs> you know they just want somebody else to do the killing
1: That doesn't sound like it's uh, coming from a place of integrity. I disagree. I don't think that's it. I think we're duped. You know, as I was saying before, I think you're duped into thinking that your neighbors do support war because militarism is all around us, right? So we think, well, I guess I better not say anything because, they, you know, I don't want to offend anybody because somehow a a, a position of peace somehow offends people. But um, not having the courage is something completely different than objecting to war, I, I agree with that. And so so if you're afraid, if you think you're consciously afraid to go to war, but yet you'd send somebody else's kid to die for you, yeah, that doesn't seem like it's coming from a real defensible place. Um, and I just don't think it's a place that's been, you know, reflected upon in these people's lives. I don't think there's a lot of self-reflection or a lot of um, self-awareness on why we make the decisions that we make. We We're... we're the very thing that makes us, by default, conscientious objectors is our innate, um, our, our innate desire to cooperate with one another, to go along, to be a member of the PAC. So when we think the whole PAC is supporting the military, that's what we want to do. We don't want to stand out. But actually, the whole PAC is not supporting the military. And I think if they were to uh, do some self-reflection, they would get to the root of that. Uh, also, if we had an open and honest discussion, of war and the realities of military service, I think a lot of people would also be uh, would have their eyes opened and would have their their overt you know their stated opinions change. As I said, if we understood the deep trauma and suffering of service members, and that doesn't have to be people who served in combat. There is diagnosable trauma simply from military training, simply from the act of being trained to take another human life. People have diagnosable trauma. So I think if we had an open and honest and transparent discussion of that and if we really absorbed across the board, across society, if we really absorbed the costs, the the financial and the real human costs of war, I think that would affect people. But that's why it's kept from us. Remember hearing about the Vietnam days and everybody you saw on the evening news and you're talking about a time period where there were, you know, three channels over the broadcast airwaves, right? And everybody was watching TV the evening news around the country and everybody was having the same conversation right with Walter Cronkite or whoever you know whoever they were watching on their on their news channel that night on abc cbs or nbc and they were seeing the coffins the flag draped coffins of the young men coming home from vietnam and everybody was talking about it because there was a draft as well right so every community was touched by it whereas today in the all recruited military there are communities who are who are completely untouched, of course, right? Vast communities that are completely untouched. And so we don't see – we've now been prohibited, right? There's actually a law against showing – or policy against showing those flag-draped coffins as they come home every night. We read the names. Oh, sure, Martha Raddix or whatever her name is on, you know – Sunday morning show, she reads the names, oh, and we pay tribute to those who have served, blah, 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 yeah, right, (laughs) but we don't get to see the body, we don't get to see the grieving family, we don't get to understand the circumstances under which that person died, we don't get to understand, you know, their loved ones and how they go on, also we don't get to see the person who's been wounded Trump you know with trauma or physically we'll follow that person for the rest of their life and we hear the little public interest stories you know also once in a while but if we actually had an honest and open discussion as a, a, a community in this country of the reality of military service and war I think more people would would be opposed. I think more people would stand up for what they really do value, which is peaceful solution to conflict and caring for for people in need, caring for the ones we've already wounded.
0: You're absolutely right. I just had to play devil's advocate, you know.
1: (laughs) 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 Well, I think you should. I mean, challenge me on it. Sure. Challenge me on it. But we, we live in a situation where we don't have that honest discussion. So I'm only projecting, obviously, but we know what's here. We know the fact of the matter is we don't have an honest discussion. Most people do not understand what's going on in, in, our, in, our, um, in our military policy around the world. Most people in this country are, are uninformed about it, and that's intentional. That is intentional. This is a systemic, um, you know, uh, whitewashing of information, basically. Blackout, whitewashing, whatever you want to call it, of information. People do not understand. You know, I had to do some digging to find out that the DOD healthcare is is facing a proposed cut under Trump's budget in order to fund some of the increase in the militarism, in the weapons, right, in the weapons and the war. But DoD healthcare is proposed to be cut. I had to dig for that. You don't hear people talking about that on the mainstream news. I heard that from the American Enterprise Institute, which is a, a pretty, I think, a right-leaning um, think tank. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I had to dig for that because we're not having these transparent conversations when people find out about this stuff of course they're livid but they don't find out too many times they don't find out
0: right so since we are talking about since we're on it and we're talking about you know opposition to war and blowing whistles and all that good stuff um you know i introduced you know my situation you know with me filing as a conscientious objector and we had you on the show and uh on the first episode that you were here and we we brushed on it a little bit. Um, I would like to ask you only because I don't want to talk about myself at all, but only because, you know, I put it out there that I am a conscientious objector. So I'm sure at this point, you know, I, honestly, I've met people that, you know, agree with my plight and what I'm going through and the whole mindset. So I know that people out there are listening and we were talking about, you know, bringing awareness to this. So, would you like to update and give them a summary of my situation and what I've been going through and where it's at now so that person that may be, you know, leaning towards that can get more information about the process and everything that entails and, you know, the outcomes and all that good stuff?
1: Sure. So uh, I don't remember where you were in your process when we last talked, but basically, you know, Jay uh, made a beautiful written statement of his testimony, his beliefs, how they evolved, and how they guide him in his life, especially, you know, with specific focus on war and military service. And then uh, there was a hearing. There's always a hearing with an investigating officer, and that means that uh, you're on the hot seat. So Jay was on the hot seat for like four hours or something like
0: that. <laughs> I don't remember how long it <laughs> felt was. felt like four days. <laughs>
1: felt like four days, exactly. And the Air Force is the most brutal. So if anyone from other branches are listening, most times hearings are, you know, two hours. Jay's hearing was, um, was on the shorter side for the Air Force, but, uh, but still on the longer side in general. And, uh, things went well. The investigating officer saw Jay's sincerity, recommended approval. Now it goes up to personnel command, the, the office that's in charge of, of personnel decisions for all of the Air Force. If Jay was an officer, this would actually go directly to the Secretary of the Air Force for disposition or, the, or the, the acting secretary, of course, because we don't have a secretary under Trump yet for any of the British's. <laughs> um, so uh, so the, the person designated to deal with this in the secretary's office, in the Pentagon. That's how important conscientious objection is, is that they send it to the highest levels of the chain of command for disposition. And I think they do that for a couple of reasons. I think they do that because they understand how powerful this is, but I think that they also understand that you're not going to get a fair, a fair shake you know, from your local command. You're too intimate there. Um, there's too much possibility for, for them to be unfair with you and not to give you, you know, a fair consideration of your case. So I think there's actually wisdom in it, but it takes a long time. So, yep, so it has to clear these hurdles. It has to go through the command all the way up in in, in this case. Um, to, as an enlisted airman to the personnel command, Air Force personnel command. And, uh, and then we'll know in a, hopefully in a couple of months, um, if Dave's, uh, decision is, is for, for discharge. And, uh, I'm certain that it will be. So, um, yeah, but it's a lot of waiting. And in the meantime, of course, You know, Jay is given, uh, conscientious objectors are given duties that conflict as little as possible with their beliefs. So they're not expected to train with weapons or engage with weapons or engage in, in warfare, obviously. But everyone knows that every role in the military, I mean, Dick Cheney said it himself. He said the military is not a job training program. The military's job is to fight and win wars. And so, therefore, every role in the military supports that capital m mission you know so um so it's it's a place of i think and jay you can speak to this i mean it's a place of struggle and i think discomfort to know that for many months you're there and you're compromising your conscience the entire time
0: absolutely absolutely i I tell people if they had me scooping ice cream every day um (laughs) it's still a burden it's, it's still a burden. coming forward you know with it has lifted a huge burden off me but it's still a burden that's there um every day that i continue to you know uh facilitate help facilitate um so you know moving along thank you for that and uh providing that information but moving along uh before we wrap this up i guess is there anything else that People need to know about this current legislation, anything that they need to keen in on that um, could really impact us in, in our lives that we need to pay attention to.
1: Oh, my goodness. I mean, we talked about a lot of things. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's really scary. We we just don't know. I, I think for me the most troubling thing is the is the personal profiteering. You know, I mean, this this family is getting rich off what should be public service or, or continuing to enrich themselves. They're already rich, you know, but they're continuing to enrich themselves off public service. You know, it's looking like just in his first few months, Trump is using the, you know, almost the, end, or in his first year or something, he'll outpace President Obama's um, eight years of travel expenses. You know, um, this is just outrageous. I, I think it's, I think it's a lot of these last couple of months, these first couple of months of the Trump administration, he's actually spent uh, more than Obama spends in a year and spent in one of his years for his travel and he's traveling and going to his own family businesses. <laughs> so this is completely an impeachable offense. This is a violation of the U S constitution. I mean, he's enriching himself off of U S taxpayer money and his family is doing the same. His family is entrenched in business dealings around the world and that is, you know, that's a tricky situation when you have someone who then is beholden um, to those things. You know, so we're not sure that that the Trump administration is going to be making decisions that are in the best interest of the people of this country or in the best interest of the Trump family business. So that's troubling and, and really despicable at the at the highest level um, and, to, and completely uh, not not deserving of any of our respect whatsoever. Um, he promised not to engage in wars. As a, as a person, as an individual, and as a candidate, he said he would never go into Syria. Now, of course, we're putting more boots on the ground in Syria, and now we're engaging in airstrikes, which means we've actually engaged in, in, in conflict against the Syrian regime, which we hadn't done before, so that's a, a, an overt escalation. Uh, Trump has allowed his, his uh, generals in the field, as well as the CIA, to loosen the restrictions on carrying out strikes on civilians. So we're looking at not only the already, we're seeing increased civilian casualties uh, in these wars, particularly in Yemen, you know, where we're allowing arms sales to the Saudi government, which is a human rights abuser to the highest degree. Um, But also this is, again, looking at our service members. If our service members are asked to carry out strikes without regard to civilian casualties, what does that do to their hearts and their souls when they come home? So that's a very sad uh turn of events there um and uh yeah, just more uh, he he's he's clearly not interested in 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 um in pulling back and 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 lower lowering the threshold lowering the the possibility for wars you know he criticized hillary and I, and I heard during the campaign people criticized Hillary as the one who would get us into World War three well, I don't know that that was untrue. You know, she certainly is bellicose as well. And I believe she praised the airstrikes or at least supported them happening. Um, So, so it's not a matter of would she have not done this, but a matter of we had hoped that he wouldn't. And of course he did, you know, Um, and, and is, is, is a loose cannon even more so than, than, than anyone that has ever held that office. So that's, so that's troubling. Um, yeah, we just we just keep our eyes open and just pay attention. Uh I would you know, ask people to seek alternative news sources. Check out the Intercept, theintercept.com. It's also a great podcast. Um what else is good? Democracynow.org dot org is excellent. Um and uh yeah, just follow the money, know where your news is coming from and um keep your eyes open and be vigilant. <laughs> that's the best I can say right now how's that? <laughs> yeah,
0: that's good uh, you you mentioned Hillary though would would things uh-huh. have been better or you know would it have been more miraculous I guess in, in a <laughs> positive direction if Hillary were elected
1: Yeah, here's where I think there is a difference yes I think that there is a lot of daylight between the Democrats and the Republicans no question about it um, but where there is no daylight is on war they both are in bed with the war profiteers, you know, with the weapons developers, as I talked about earlier. Both parties equally, or, or nearly equally, are beholden to to the weapons industry, and both parties equally support a militarized foreign policy. So there, there, it's 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 almost the same, you know, uh, almost not entirely. I still I still think um, that. That, that Hillary would have been a little more level-headed and would have at least had principles. And I don't think she would have cut the diplomatic budget uh, at all because she was Secretary of State, of course. So I think she sees the value of the State Department, whereas Trump has no no idea of the value of the State Department. But other places where it would really shine through, where the difference would really shine through, would be for things like the Muslim ban and things like the the wall and refugees, a, a, a more left-leaning government obviously sees human rights as critical. This, gov- this Trump administration doesn't even give lip service to human rights, doesn't even give lip service to human rights, let alone welcomes that Saudi prince, and the Saudi Arabian government is responsible for, for, for human rights violations in the, of the highest degree. So it's very troubling, that part, that there's not even lip service to human rights among uh, the members of this administration, whereas uh, more left-leaning Democrats um, are absolutely more left-leaning and Democrats, not more left-leaning Democrats. All Democrats have uh, an eye towards human rights, uh, even when it's hypocritical, (laughs) even when there is some hypocrisy, obviously, because, as I said, they both do support war but even when there's hypocrisy there's always been lip service and, and to be honest that hypocrisy has value it does because if you, if you if you at least have lip service toward human rights then you're at least sending the message that we are watching human rights violators around the world but when you don't even speak the words then the human rights violators around the world feel like they have free agency and no one's watching them the United States won't won't step in or, or won't support any kind of protections so that's really scary here at home Obviously, um, rights for you know non-conforming people, you know um, LGBTQ people, clearly disregarded by this administration. Even though they promised, even though Trump promised as a candidate that he would support, and he was an ally of the LGBTQ community, his nominee to the Supreme Court uh, now now Supreme Court Justice Neil gorsuch um he believes in in you know christian theocracy he believes in in a christian version of sharia law right everybody fears muslim sharia law but what they want instead is a is a a christian uh, law governing the country and that's not what this country is about the first amendment not only guarantees freedom of exercise practice you know the freedom to practice whatever religion and believe whatever you want but it also guarantees that the government will not establish a religion that means the government will not favor one religion over another, and unfortunately the trump administration administration and the and the Republican right do favor a theocracy they do favor a christian based government, and that is not the way this country goes. You know we should you're free to worship your God, but no one else should be subject to the rules that your holy book tells you you need to be subject to so equal treatment under the law. For queer people, for for women, uh, we can see tossed out the window. Obviously, there's overt racism in this administration, which we would not have seen and have not seen. Uh, it's funny that the backlash, the first black president, was followed by a white supremacist. You know, and that's horrifying. That's a horrifying trend for our country. And uh, Trump may not fancy himself as a white supremacist or a white nationalist, as as they call themselves, but certainly white supremacy, it's racism, it's white supremacy. But they say white nationalism to sort of water it down a little bit. I don't know if Trump himself sees that, although he was, you know, sued in the 70s for racial discrimination in his apartment buildings. So maybe he is. But I don't know if he copped to that overtly. But certainly his followers, and I think that's what's most troubling, is that the Trump campaign and now the administration has given voice and has elevated the voices of white supremacy and sexism, you know, like we haven't seen in a long time, misogyny and racism that we haven't seen in public life in a very long time. You know, it's been there. I mean, obviously, the backlash to, you know, having a black family in the White House was dramatic. You know, I mean, there was, there was very ugly racism, uh, no question about it, but it wasn't elevated to the, to the level that it is now with Trump as their you know, as their role model. So that's troubling and wouldn't have happened in a Hillary um, administration. <sighs> yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot, isn't it? It's a lot to take in. It's, I mean, it was a devastating loss. You know, it was a very sad um, loss because of all those things, mostly domestically. Mostly, I think the differences are really domestically. Uh, the budget, obviously, Hillary supports some level of a public option for health care. Of course, we saw the Republican nightmare of a health care bill, which basically aims to strip poor and disabled people and elders of their health care. You know, so this is this is troubling. Meals on wheels, right? You want to cut meals on wheels? Really, you want the 2.4 million Americans who receive meal assistance to, to be starved? To eat, you know, forty nine cent uh, cans of cat food from Trader Joe's. Okay, that sounds right. You know, meanwhile, we're, we're while we're spending millions of dollars every weekend to fly Trump's, you know, you
0: know, fat butt
1: <laughs> down <laughs> to. Sorry,
0: you don't have to say Florida. fat butt. You you can say what you want. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't want. to. But you know, that's just what I think. It's like you want to cut, you know, old ladies and veterans off their off their Meals on Wheels but yet we spend literally you know tens of millions of dollars to fly this guy to his golf resort every you know every every weekend and his wife you know security in New York move to the white house like everybody else you know like every other family move to the white house so we can only pay for security in one city instead of two you know and then we have um Ivanka who also gets security and gets a motorcade through the streets of D C where I live and work and <laughs> get to hear she she only lives right around the corner from our office. So I get to hear her motorcade on a daily basis. So yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of money when they wanna cut critical services for for people in need so yeah it's very troubling it's a very very troubling thing and I think people need to remain vigilant and pay attention and understand that this is not just something that happens to other people people you know and love are affected in some way by the policies of this administration by policies of every administration but this one this one promises to cut deeper for the the vast majority of vulnerable people than we've seen in a long time
0: wow um (laughs) yeah so i mean that was a lot (laughs) Um, i'm sorry no no i mean i mean a lot in in a good way like you know a lot of good information there uh before Mm -hmm. we let you go um i'm big on solutions like we you know we discussed this show about you know everything that's going wrong or whatever um and you mentioned Mm -hmm. that we should voice our displeasures Uh, Mm um before we let you go my question is How can we voice those displeasures and what else can we do? Because, you know, you know, people think that, you know, voicing their displeasures, you know, just writing a Facebook status saying, you know, F Trump Mm -hmm. or F this administration. Mm -hmm. And all you get is 100 comments back and forth and nothing is solved. Uh, Mm -hmm. What measures can we take to to reach a solution? Like what can be done and how do we go about doing it?
1: I think, you know, I think, I mean, obviously, I don't have all the answers, you know, I think. But I, but what I've learned in my work of helping individual service members is that it's really fortifying and you get to have victories, right? When I get to help one person and I see that one person get out of the military and get to follow their conscience, that's a victory. If my goal was to stop a war which it was <laughs> at one point I, in 2003. And of course we didn't stop the war in Iraq and I was devastated and I was very disappointed and I was disheartened. But with my goal is to get this one person out of the military and then tomorrow I'll get somebody else out and then tomorrow I'll help somebody else. You know, if you can have small measurable bites, measurable victories, it fortifies you to, to stick with it for the long haul. So my thinking is that you should see what's going on in your local community. Where can you make a difference in your local community? Can you run for elected office? Can you find out who is? If you don't want to, can you find out who is running for your city council or your state house or your county commission, local, local school board even, you know? These are things that the Republicans did in the 80s, right? They started doing in in the 70s and 80s, running for school board, running for city council, running for state legislature, those types of things. And and we weren't, you know, the the left kind of wasn't really paying attention to that. We're always looking at, like, the presidency and the and the Senate and the Congress. And those are very important. But the local levels are where a lot of the rubber hits the road and where local people's lives are really affected. And a lot of these local decisions are made that have wide-reaching impact. And they're also winnable. They're measurable. And they're winnable. And you're building community. And you're getting to know your neighbors. And you're reaching out beyond, you know, your Facebook page. And you're talking to real people. Um, you know, the little, the state legislatures are the ones that draw the districts for the seats in the U.S. House of Representatives. And so if you don't have good representation in the governorship and the state legislature, you're going to get gerrymandered out of, of of having representation, of having real representation that represents you and your beliefs, right, your values in the U.S. Congress. So those local seats matter. Those local seats make a big difference. So if you don't want to run for office, or maybe you don't care about electoral politics, maybe you don't think it's important, still find another way. Is there some place, some road, that'd be a perfect place for a protected bike lane? You know, can you get that done? How about a community garden? Is there some, you know, brownfield, some abandoned lot that you can, you know, toss some seeds into with some school kids in your community and and grow some fresh food that they can eat? You know, what ways can you impact you know the the four block radius around your house or the mile square you know radius around your house what can you do locally because i think those things have meaningful impact not just for the community but for your soul man (laughs) you know (laughs) and we need those things (laughs) so that's what i would say
0: yeah we do need those for our soul and uh and our
1: collective soul (laughs) right
0: and my my little stand that i've taken has really helped my soul and helps me a lot so you're definitely right when you say do what you can um Mm -hmm. so yeah uh we're gonna go ahead and let you go uh thank you so much for joining us again and hopefully this isn't the last time i hope this is an ongoing thing because we need this information (laughs) i've grown since this hour that we've been on here today oh, um good. and i hope that the audience and the listeners have as well uh before you go uh just go ahead and you know uh tell them where they can find you uh your work your the website for the organization that you work for everything just just let them know
1: thank you so much center on and conscience is like con science dot eorg owncons dot o o r g and uh two zero two four eight three two 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 zero two zero two four eight three two 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 zero and uh yeah hit us up let us know what you're doing and 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 if you need any support in your military service or or seeking a path out of military service, give us a call thank you thanks jay thanks for doing this it's important
0: no problem thank you and and check out her TED Talk as well. She's very humble and doesn't like to plug that, but uh, that's, a, that's a big deal. You should check that out. It's very informative.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much. I and mean, Stay informed. Do your part. That's the best I can say. <laughs> Thanks, Jay.
0: All right. Thank you. Talk to you later.
1: All right. Take care. Bye-bye.